If nothing else, let's have some fun. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You know we're all weird when I'm having more fun in Ecclesiastes than I am in anything else we've done, so. (laughs) Remember rules as we move forward. We are seeing the world according to the world. So Ecclesiastes flat out tells you we are diving into looking at the world from the world's perspective. Everything that the world has to offer, which if we're honest, is quite a book, quite a bit. Now, Christian, should you be like that when you look at the world? No. That is one of the reasons why I love this book so much and also one of the reasons why this book can be so difficult. You have to be careful when you go through this. But... As you live in the world and you encounter the things of the world, do you not have to be careful? You do. So this is kind of like a pop quiz you just weren't expecting. As long as you can go through this and be careful, you can then be prepared to go through your world and be careful. So, Solomon has told you he would like to test life. So what does life look like if looked at according to the world's perspective? Well, let's dive in and find out. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? To which, if you are someone who knows your New Testament, you should go, well, duh, we we already knew that going in. Things like 1 John 2. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, The better question needs to be, why is that the case? Why can John say that? And why can Solomon say this? Go all the way back to the beginning of the problem in Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now, the best question then becomes... Why can we not trust our own eyes, trust our own desires, and trust our own sinful hearts in the world? (laughs) Yes, but what is the ultimate problem? See, don't fall into the ditch. Remember our rule, as you're driving along the highway, you don't want to drive into the ditch of libertinism, not libertarianism. That's a political philosophy. 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 (laughs) English. I don't speak it very well. Sorry. (laughs) Yes. Speak English. I do not. So you don't want to drive into the libertine ditch. You know, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But you do not want to drive into the ditch of asceticism either. Remember, asceticism is the, the old monastic formula. There's the world out there, and then there's the Christian life. So you people are out there. I'm over here, and never the two shall meet. You You can't be there. You have to live in the world. We unfortunately have a society for lack of, you know, anything really. So you you are stuck with the fellow sinners upon the planet. So how do you look at things? You have to look at things from the perspective of who God is, what is wrong with this world, and what is set right. So when you look out at the world, the problem is sin. The problem is the wrath of God, enmity between God and the sinner, between all that is broken and set against him. And you must therefore be careful in how you utilize the things of the world. Now, does that mean, Christian, you can never tell a joke? You can never have laughter? I would like to think we have, you know, some fun on a Sunday morning, right? I keep telling you, if nobody else has any fun on a Sunday morning, I do. (laughs) 
No, this does not mean that everything must be, you know, different shades of gray and colored and drab, and we just stand here in mourning until the day dawns where God redeems us, and then we might think about becoming happy. Instead, we look at this world cautiously because we understand that everything in it is attempting to pull us away from faithfulness to God. That is why pleasure is futility and laughter is madness, because at the end of the day, they cannot remove the problem. Now remember, this is something we talked about last week. When is pleasure and laughter set right in this world? When it is indulged in unto the glory of God. As you try to enjoy the world for the sake of the world, you will accomplish nothing because the problem still remains. But in Christ, the problem has been taken out of the way. You are now free to evaluate and to actually enjoy the creation that God has given you. Does that mean every single possible aspect of creation can be redeemed in your life? This is the other ditches you drive through the world that is so very important. Do not fall into the understanding of, well, we're redeeming this part of culture. We're redeeming that part of culture. You are redeeming exactly what again? Nothing. It is Christ who redeems. You have to be careful how you utilize, which again, terms and conditions may apply. Your mileage may vary. Who has to evaluate your life before the throne of God? You do. You have heard me tell you this. I I said this to somebody this week. If you can stand before God with a clear conscience, have fun. (laughs) That is between you and God. You have to deal with that. There are things that will trouble my conscience that will not trouble yours. There are things that will trouble your conscience that will not trouble mine. We have to be willing to give each other a a a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. You say that three times fast. And we have to be willing to give each other a little bit of grace as long as we are not engaged in something that is overtly sinful. Does that make sense? Okay. So you've been warned about the ditches, so let's try to keep this thing in the middle of the road and keep moving forward. Verse 3, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) What could possibly go wrong here? And how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. Now, we just know that no one would ever struggle with that in the modern world, so we can just move on, right? (laughs) Now, What's the ultimate underlying problem here? Be very careful. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. Christian, who needs to guide you wisely? God. Now, should you use your brain? Yes. Should you always trust your brain? No, this is, you want a great example from modern, from the modern world and even secular culture. Do you know what type of testimony in a court is the least reliable? Eyewitness testimony. You will lie to you more than anything. And if you don't believe me, if you've ever been in a car accident, I want you to stop and try to remember everything that happened in it. And you will have vivid detail of things. And then you could literally go run to the person who stood on the side of the road and watch the accident. And they will have vivid details of everything. And neither the two shall meet. Because you will fill in gaps if you are not certain. You will lie to yourself about, you, about what you think you did or did not see. It's astounding how, how we are capable of distorting what is literally right in front of our very own eyes. Now, why do I tell you that? Because again, the problem is sin and the problem corrupts everything. 
which means as you are guided, you need to be guided by something better than you, something smarter than you, and something that is a, a more that has more power than you. You need to be reliant upon Christ, his accomplished work, and the guiding of the Spirit. This is, again, go back to your prophetic utterances. This is why Isaiah warns, Isaiah 55. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. This is the danger of resting upon your mind in the things of this world as you are resting upon something that has been corrupted by sin. Is it being renewed and redeemed daily by God? Yes. Does that mean that, well, you know, I have progressed far enough. I think I can go it alone now. No. Not now. Not ever. Now, here's where we get fun with history. Just in case you are tempted to look back 3,000 years ago and say, yeah, well, we have so much more temptation and the world has so much more to offer us than it did to them. I would like to present to you the rest of this little section, starting in verse 4. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Okay, there's a list. Solomon has everything the world could possibly offer, including several things that the world probably shouldn't offer. And I will simply <laughs> leave it at that. Now, why do I point this out? Because this is the lie of the world. This is what the lie is every single day. Fast forward into your New Testament from here, things like Matthew 4. The devil took him, this is talking about Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now I point that out because for all of Solomon's wisdom, for all of Solomon's riches, for all of his insight and understanding, he's still a human being, isn't he? He still has temptations, and as you know from the history of Solomon, how do he do with those temptations? <laughs> this is again why you don't look to men and why you don't trust in yourself. You look to Christ. Where we have fallen, he has succeeded. Where we fell low, he stood proud. Where we were due penalty, he has taken penalty. This is the reminder of who Christ is and what he has done in, op in opposition to who we are and what we do on a regular basis. The temptations that we look at are as old as time. And I'm so tempted to make a reference, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Okay. <laughs> You'll have to ask me about it later if you really want to know. But the temptations of humanity are not new. We just, we are simply more exposed to them simply because we have more access to information than most of humanity had. But you also don't have the resources at your disposal that Solomon had, and you do not have the obedience to your command that Solomon had. Whatever he could have imagined, Solomon had. And whatever he did imagine, he did have. And again, unfortunately. Now, the advantage of that for us 
is what is wisdom supposed to do for you? What is the purpose of wisdom? Purpose of wisdom so you can sit back on high in your rocking chair and go, yep, look at all these fools around me. <laughs> that, is, that may be what you try to do with wisdom, but that is not the purpose of wisdom. The purpose of wisdom is so that you can look at those fools and go, son, come, come, come here. Okay. You know what's going to happen? You go down the road. No, you have no idea what's going to go happen that road. You need to turn into Foghorn Leghorn. Come here, come here, come here, boy. Sit down. Let me tell you something. Come here. <laughs> and explain why. Because if you were in that position, however many years ago, you would have loved for someone to go, look, don't, don't eh. we know where that goes and we know where that leads. Learn from the mistakes. Solomon is tempted in all ways as we are and is yet chock full of sin as a lesson to us so that we can look back and say, I don't need this temptation. I don't need that temptation to know what the fruit of that temptation is in the humanity that I possess. I don't need to experience that temptation to know that it is wrong to go down that road. I can lean upon the anchor that I possess simply because I know that everything else is folly. How do I know that? As I've told you a thousand times, they put it in a book. It would behoove us to be, to be mindful of that each and every day. So let's continue. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. This is a good little pause point. From where does this wisdom come? Remember this, 1 Kings 3. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, you have nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to word to your... If I could read, we'd be all set. I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. Now, you're smart. You're wealthy. You're powerful. And when I say you're smart, I don't mean you have, you know, encyclopedias full of knowledge. I mean, you have actual, honest-to-goodness, God-given wisdom. You know what is right. You know how to explain what is right. You know how to apply what is right. What could possibly go wrong in this situation? What's the problem then and now? Better yet, who's the problem then and now? We are! This is why you don't rest. That's, that's the warning here. I became great, increased more than all who were in Jerusalem, and my wisdom stood by me. I don't need my wisdom to stand by me. I need God to stand by me. And that's something that'll be very clear as we get towards the end of this book. Continue on. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because, all my because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. So he's pleased with his works because his works are good, because he's a smart guy and he has all this money. Now time out for a second. Solomon's reward was his wisdom. What was the condition on that reward? Did you know that there was a condition for Solomon on that wisdom? See, I, I just read you 1 Kings 3, 10 through 13. Who wants to read verse 14? Ooh, ooh, I do, I do, I do. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Which, by the way, is absolutely fair. 
Who gets to determine the rules in your house? Now, be honest. You do. Does the neighbor get to go over and say, you know what? <laughs> pointing at your wife. Does your neighbor get to come over and say, I think you should paint the kitchen yellow? Does that mean you have to go out and buy yellow paint for your kitchen? Why not? Because you, you don't live here. This isn't your house. Go paint your kitchen yellow and leave my kitchen alone. You are now receiving the lift of fellowship. Yeah. <laughs> At some point, all of you have either heard or said this to a child. As long as you live in my house, <laughs> you will follow dot, 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 dot. Now, I give you that simple understanding because human being, you understand this about life. Now remember, Christian, whose house are you in? When you go outside to play in the green grass, whose house are you in? Who gets to make the rules? God does. Now, I point that out simply because this is the thing that people get hung up upon. The problem is us is a big issue because our sinfulness moves, to, moves us to a place where we want to make the rules and we want to determine these things. And again, there is a way which seems right unto a man, and in the end, that way leads to death. You can't make the rules. If you're Solomon, you don't get to receive wisdom from on high and say, all right, now that I know some stuff... I get to go determine how this is supposed to work. Rewind to something we read a few minutes ago. When she took and saw that it was a delight to the eyes and useful to make one wise, she took and eats. No! Who made the rules? When you make the rules, death and destruction comes along. Now, keep moving. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. Now stop for just one second. Didn't he just say he was pleased with all of that? I, it was good work. I got the money. I got the prestige. I got the stuff. I got pawns and people and money and everything. And that is the pleasure of my heart. Woohoo, go team. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Why not? The answer is really, really simple. Idols break the hearts of their worshipers. Always have, always will. The lie of Satan is not, hey, come on over and everything will be fine and it'll be fun and you'll enjoy it and I'll enjoy watching you go to hell. This will be an awesome time. You know, with his little spiky horns and his pitchfork and red unitard. Why not? Because you would look at that and go, um, I don't think that's how I want to work. Like when the guy walks up to you in the street corner and he's got the trencher and he's like, hey, you want to buy a watch? <laughs> and you open, like, why does that never happen? Like, they have, why is it, why is that, because it's a movie trope. Because you would immediately look at that and go, where'd you get all those watches? No, you're a cop, you're a cop. Okay. <laughs> Evil disguises itself. Satan disguises himself, disguises himself an angel of light. It's a corruption and it's a temptation. And this is the lie that the world wants to sell you on is that you will have everything and it will be good and you will enjoy it and you will live a wonderful life. Solomon is doing that in realizing what? Trust me, you've never said this about anybody ever. Don't they have enough stuff? Don't they have enough money? You've never looked at a business or a corporation. Don't they have enough? <laughs> You know what the answer to that is, right? If you ask them, have you got enough stuff now? The answer is, no. 
I don't have enough, whatever it may be. There's a, there's a parable about this in Luke 12. The farmer has a great crop come in. Does he have enough barns and silos? No. And when he finally does and he thinks he's satisfied, God's like, okay, come on, you're with me now. <laughs> Oops. This is the brokenness. This is the lie. This is what idolatry gives you each and every day. And by the way, you've been warned. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all the good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. In other words, God will give you everything you could possibly imagine. You will have worked for none of it. Watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. And this is why you have to be wary and be careful in the world. Because this is the story of humanity going back to the beginning. Adam and Eve put in the garden. Everything is perfect. You know, that fruit looks pretty good. We'll be, we'll be wise if we eat it. We'll be like, God. I'm in. People. You had one rule. Couldn't do it. Israel brought into the good land. How long do they last before they turn against God and engage in idolatry and forsake his commandments? About 45 minutes. And they engage in this before they even enter the land. Never, never yet the most known part of the story of the Exodus. If you ask kids about, you know, what's the one thing they know about the Exodus, they'll probably give you one of a couple of answers. They'll give you the Red Sea. They'll give you the manna or, the manna, or they'll give you what? 40 years in the wilderness. Why are they 40 years in the wilderness again? Well, because we sent the spies into the land. And you know what? The people in the land that we have to conquer with the help of God, they're tall. And God can part the Red Sea and he can give manna from heaven and he can produce water from a rock and he can crush Israel and, or he can crush Egypt and he can turn the sun dark for three days and he can turn the waters to blood. But I don't know if he can beat tall people. I'm not certain. I have my doubts. <laughs> It's not that they don't have enough faith. It's, this, it's the stupidity of the argument. They're really big. He killed all the cattle. There was hail. There was darkness for three days. Never forget, by the way, that when you get to the second half of the plagues, the plagues were going on in Egypt, but not in Goshen. So like there was darkness in Egypt, but there wasn't darkness in Goshen. And to this day, that is like one of the things I want to build a DeLorean to go make sense of. Like, I want to, like, do you walk in Goshen and it's like, ooh, it's bright in here. And then you walk in Egypt, it's not bright anymore. It's like, is there a border? Like, can you just... <laughs> I, see, these are the thoughts that keep me out of the really good schools. And they did this and they walked out and they got to the Red Sea and there's a pillar of cloud and there's a pillar of fire and the sea parts, but they're really, really big, guys. I'm not sure. <gasps> that's the problem of humanity, is we trust in ourselves, we think from a human perspective, and we forget that it is God who rules and reigns over everything. We assemble the idol, we place it upon the shelf, as Isaiah describes, and then we bow down to it, and it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. It is our fear and our loathing and our desires and anything that we could imagine subsumed into one thing, and we have forgotten who God is, and when we do that, we are hopeless because we have turned away from the one source of truth, the one source of power, and the one source of redemption in this world. The warning of Ecclesiastes is there is nothing in this world 
that can satisfy. There is nothing in this world that can sit upon the throne of God and be equal to who he is and what he does for his people. The lie that we are stuck with so often that we end up believing is there's got to be something else. We just haven't found it yet. I'm telling you, it has been searched for and it doesn't exist. But we'll continue because Solomon continues. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been, already been done? Uh-huh. This is good. Solomon is wise, and Solomon is wise enough to know that other people are not as wise as he is. <laughs> and believe it or not, that's actually important. This is, um, oh, there's actually a name for this. Have you ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Oh, it's fascinating thing in psychology. So if you, if you take four people and you put them in a room, it's just these four people, and let's just, you just rank them one, two, three, and four in intelligence. So one of them is really smart, two of them are on you know, opposite ends of just normal intelligence in the middle, and then one of them is on the bottom end of the scale. I'm just trying to be polite about it. If you ask them who the smartest person in the room is, you know who, says, who, who will say they're the smartest? No, Matt's got it. Number four, the least intelligent one will say they're the most intelligent. And you know who will say they're the least intelligent typically? The smartest one in the room will say they're the least intelligent because they're aware of what they don't know, and so they assume other people have the same awareness. It's fascinating how messed up we are as people. (laughs) Remember, it's called the noetic effect of the fall. Sin corrupts everything, including the way you think. (laughs) That's not nice. I saw that. Mike and Clark are doing their Mike and Clark bit with each other. <laughs> if, if, you under, if you understand, that's Jack Lemmon and that's Walter Matthau, okay? <laughs> now you understand how they interact. Now, Solomon is wise enough that he is actually beyond the Dunning-Kruger scale, and he is actually looking at this and saying, no, 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 no. I recognize that other people don't have this wisdom, and that's part of the problem, because what does humanity do? Humanity does what humanity has always done, and what's the driving force of humanity? Well, I'll borrow from Paul as he quotes from the Old Testament in Romans 3. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a ringing endorsement of humanity, isn't it? And by the way, if you doubt that for a second, just look at the course of humanity. What we call progress, biblical wisdom and morality would call destruction. Do you ever notice how we never progressed anything that is nicer? We never progressed anything that is more polite, that is more formal. We constantly progress to something that is more base more vulgar. I mean, just, just think through. Just think through where you are now in modern language and rewind yourself 50 years if you've been around that long. Are there words in common parlance today that you would have thought were curses 50 years ago? Probably so. I'm 40, what year is it? 41. <laughs> the, I see things now and go, wait a minute. 
Like, and, and believe me, I, I am no shrinking violet. I've told you before, I was raised by an alcoholic naval veteran. So I was literally raised by a drunken sailor. So if it's, if it's sayable, I've heard it and probably said it. Like, what, I, I, when my family moved to North Carolina, we moved the year I started the fourth grade. Um, went to a small Christian school. And the reason my parents did that is not because they were believers of any shape, form, or fashion. It's because my local public school in rural North Carolina, the year we moved, the, um, the median SAT score was 710. And my parents went, oh, um, that's on a 1600 scale. <laughs> so my parents went, um, these schools are are bad. To, to, that's the nicest way to put it. So they, uh, between them and my grandparents, they ponied up and sent me to a small private school where you know, they actually taught you things. The goal was, uh, I'm going to learn to read and write properly. So, but I was surrounded primarily by church kids. It's the Bible Belt. They figured out real quick when they wanted to know what all the curse words meant, you know who they asked? <laughs> they asked me. And me, you know what I told them? I told them what they meant. <sighs> So yeah, when I say there's nothing that I probably haven't heard, there's really not much I haven't heard. There are times when I find myself watching things going, that's not what we used to put on TV. That's not how we used to say this. Now, why do we say this now? Just think about it from this perspective. How many of you guys remember NYPD Blue? I was a teenager. Remember? We, we, we put a butt on TV for the first time at like 1045. Do you remember that? That was a scandal. Imagine there's a buttocks on TV today. Does anybody care? This is, when, I, when I was a teenager, just 30 years ago, this, this was, there were news stories and boycotts and protests. How could ABC put half of a naked cheek of Jimmy Smith's on, on network television at 1045 at night? And they did. Now, I point that out to you because that was 30 years ago. That's living memory of people who are not that old. And that is what we call progress that we now have the freedom to do this sort of thing. Yeah. That's not progress. That's paganism run amok. This is what we produce, and this is the problem of humanity as we move forward trusting in ourselves. And by the way, who's recognizing this? The smart guy in the room who's writing this book because he sees that. So, if you're smart, if you know better, and you see the regression of humanity being disguised as progress, what's your first inclination to do? What do we have to do? We've got to teach them better, don't we? We've got to educate them better. We've got to make sure that they know this is wrong. Verse 13. I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. I'm smart. I know. I can instruct and I can teach you. And at the end of the day, I'm going to die just like everybody else. That's Solomon's complaint right now. What did my wisdom accomplish me? When it is set forth according to the course of this world, you know what the answer is? Nothing. It accomplished nothing. Absolutely, positively nothing. Paul, piggybacking on this idea, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now stop before you think that somebody's getting ready to get married, because we read 1 Corinthians 13 again. Every year at Christmas, we define love. What's the definition? 1 John 
chapter four. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I always do this. I know most of you know this by now. Big fancy theological word of the day is propitiation. Literally means to turn away wrath. Meaning Christ's work does what? He accomplishes the removal of the biggest problem. This is the problem of humanity. It's not that our thinking is broken. It's not that our actions are broken. It's not that our definitions are broken. It's that we are broken. And that in our sin, the wrath of God abides upon us and Christ turns away that wrath, removes the heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, which can then renew the mind, which changes the actions as we live in this place. Now, again, the problem then becomes as you now with that renewed mind and changed heart and changed life, look out in this world and go, what are you people doing? And your initial reaction is, well, we got to teach them. We got to tell them. Yeah, tell them what? Tell them what? You can't change their actions. You can't change their minds unless you first change their hearts. You must go out into the world wielding the weapon of Scripture. You must wield the sword that undoes their hearts by proclaiming Christ and Him crucified because that's the problem. As long as we are willing to lie to ourselves about what the problem is, we misunderstand the solution both in our lives and in their lives. And by the way, this is not like my, my weekly, like, beat you with a frying pan to go evangelize. My point here is to understand what is broken so that when you have opportunity to argue, when you have opportunity to proclaim truth, you are actually doing it the right way. We don't, it's coming, I'm telling you right now, and it's going to ratchet up to 11 because it's going to get worse every single year until Jesus comes back. But you know what's coming up next year, right? You know what it's going to be? The most important election of our lifetimes. Dun, dun, dun. Until when? Until the next one. Until Jesus comes back, it will be the most important. <laughs> if you don't run out and vote for this guy, they're going to do this. And if you don't run out and vote for that guy, they're going to do this. You don't need a better political candidate. You don't need a better philosophy. You don't need a better law. You need Jesus. Now, as you argue, as you debate these things, come back to the foundation. That's why, I, you know what, let me, what verse was it? My brain just stopped. I'm having like complete meltdowns today. So, uh, yeah, for three, 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 three. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. Now, again, the reason why I told you what was the biggest problem the trust, the foundation. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Because some of you in this room read that verse and went, there's the problem. He grabbed wine. And some of you read that verse and went, well, there's the problem. He misappropriated the wine. No, the problem is the foundation. The problem is him. The problem is where the trust is. The problem is who is guiding and what I am building my life upon. We do an awesome job of seeing the problems out there and then attacking them up here. We do a terrible job of understanding why are you like that? And why am I like this? And then making sure we argue at a foundational level. I don't want to smack your head off your head. I want to kick you in the shins until you stop doing that. Because that's when the, the, that, now the foundation comes out from underneath. Like, you guys remember that American Gladiator show? They used to have the jousting thing. You put the two people on the platforms with the big sticks. Imagine if you didn't have to hit the dude with the stick, but you could just hit the platform and he'd fall over. What would you do? Let's sit here fighting. Dude's like four of me. Wee! Bye! Christian, that's what the gospel gives you. That's what the gospel gives you is you get to go up against the monster that is society, and you don't have to do the slap fight up here. You can just go, we're done here. 
and we go home because now we've gotten to the real problem. And once we've gotten to the real problem, we can actually present a real solution. We can present Christ and him crucified, changing the heart, which changes the mind, which then changes the world that moves out. As long as that's not where we argue, we are already lost. As long as that is where we argue, we cannot be defeated. Because we are standing upon him. There is nothing the world can do. There is nothing the world can take. Because we have been faithful no matter what has gone on. That's part of the lesson. You can't be rich enough. You can't be powerful enough. You can't be smart enough. You have to rest upon God. And by the way, Solomon is going to start to see that in just a minute. We're almost there. Verse 16. There is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Yes! Yes, it is! I'm not going to argue with Solomon. I'm not going to try to change his mind. If you live for the world according to the world's standards and seek after everything that the world has told you is good, it is vanity and futility and striving after the wind. I, um, I like chasing better. I think the NIV uses chasing just because it, it gives you a better picture. Is it the NIV that uses chasing? Yeah, somebody nodded. To <laughs> I like when I get the nods. It makes my life easier. Believe it or not, this right here, that's the point. That's actually the point is if you live according to the world's standards and you seek everything according to the world's methods and all of your life is found here, it's supposed to feel useless and hopeless because there's no there there. You are chasing the wind. Try to catch the wind sometime and see how that works out for you. Just have fun. You'll get some good exercise. If you're trying to start that new diet plan, you'll be, you'll be good to go. You, I'm not going to tell you where you're going to end up, but you know that's how it is. This is the warning that Paul gives, 1 Corinthians 3. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, Paul ends with that because he's actually trying to give encouragement to the Corinthians that if they are redeemed, but they are still living upon a lie that they can still trust in Christ. The works will be gone, but they will be saved. Now, what happens, though, if you are building your life upon the wrong foundation and you are building it with the wrong materials and the fire comes? Where do you wind up? Welcome to the world. Welcome to why it is supposed to be futility. You are supposed to be able to come in, Christian, and say there is a better way because there is a better foundation. There is a better hope. And we're supposed to be able to live in this world in such a way to demonstrate that. This is again why I tell you to avoid both ditches. You don't fall into the libertine ditch, which says, well, I'm just going to live like everybody else and trust that Jesus will get me through. No! That's literally Romans 6. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be, which is one of the most fun things to say in Greek, by the way. I don't usually give you the Greek or the Hebrew, but in meganoita, just sounds, just sounds fun. It just sounds like you told somebody no, and that you probably shouldn't repeat that, right? It's meganoita. <laughs> <laughs> telling mom <laughs> it does it's, it's, it sounds like when you were a kid and you found out like somebody's face somebody in some like they're, they're, somebody's uncle speaks another language you're like can you tell us all the curse words <laughs> see you're laughing because you know you did that it's the only thing you ever wanted to know like joe's brother joe's uncle speaks italian oh can he tell me how to say that <laughs> and you know what typically happened with joe's uncle don't you <laughs> he taught you how to say that <laughs> Anyway, sorry. May it never be. Instead, 
you avoid that ditch and you avoid the ditch that says we don't live any part of this world, but we live in the world and we live in the world rightly. We do not forsake the entirety of existence, but we forsake the entirety of existence as it pulls us into its worship. And we live our lives in the center of the highway, utilizing the things that the good gifts God has given us so that we glorify him in this place so that we can, even if we are the one testimony, before the 450 prophets of Baal, we are a faithful testimony knowing that he will redeem his people. Let's continue. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Mm Mm-hmm. Work everything you can unto this world and leave it to this world, and what will eventually happen? You'll be parted from it. And again, this is part of the problem of humanity. You can educate them more, you can teach them more, you can give them all the wisdom, and this is what idolatry, idolatry produces. It produces nothing. My favorite example of this is Israel. Israel and the kings. So if you go back to where they get a king from, 1 Samuel chapter 8, the, the overlooked portion, everybody knows the, we want a king to be like the other nations, and God gives them a king, and that's where they get Saul. The overlooked portion of that, you know what Samuel did first, right? He told them what having a king meant. Now, Listen to this. Imagine you went to the party. I mean, imagine you went to the political office and you're like, all right, I am on board with your idea. We want this. All right, what will that mean? Here's what it'll mean. Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of, asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and, and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And they heard all of that and went, I'm in. <laughs> Because what does idolatry produce? It's a believing of the lie. It's a turning away. Now again, Solomon is seeing this. Solomon sees that I can give you all the good things. Some nitwit is going to come after me and take over. What was the point again? So Christian, I ask you, everything you've built in life, everything you have accomplished, everything that you have learned, what was the point again? Because if the answer is anything other than the service of the kingdom of God, This is your future. It is vanity, striving after the wind. And this is why you have to evaluate because you are dealing with an idolatry that looks at the results of its sin and says, sign me up. I mean, think of your modern world. Forget Israel. Think of your modern world. If you go down this road of understanding morality, your marriages will break down. Your communities will hate each other. People will be at each other's throats. You will try to cheat your neighbor every chance you get. Your neighbor will try to cheat you at every chance he gets. Your children will have mental illness and want to kill themselves. You know what the world said? We're in. They had the same answer. Because we want that. 
more than we would want the protection of any of these things. And what have you seen the last, what have you seen in my lifetime, the last 40 years? You've seen the breakdown of marriages. You've seen the destruction of families. You've seen the corruption of, of even labor. I, I mean, I laugh every once in a while I think about this. When Cameron's, um, when Cameron's grandfather passed away years ago, he was an electrician at a paper mill for most of his adult life. He bought a house that he paid for like once a week, and he bought the house in like 12 years. <laughs> and, he, and it wasn't even a burden. It just, could you process that? You probably just going down to the neighbor three doors down and making a house payment, and by the time your, your baby son is in middle school, your house is paid for? <laughs> Working shift work, hourly wages. Could you do that? They did. Why? It's a different world. It's a different understanding of economy and a different way the money functioned. Why has it changed? Because everything changes the more we do. You, because I want more, and if I, have to have, if I want more, I want to make sure I give you less. Because you're no longer Imago Dei, made in the image of God. You're just a cog in the machine that feeds. This is a legitimate complaint that people have about the modern world. Their solution is, so we'll seize everything and redistribute it, and you know what that'll do? It'll take those sinners from being in charge, and it'll make these sinners in charge. No, the, the changes in the hearts and in the minds of the people, the proclamation of the gospel that actually improves the society. Remember, the rising tide raises how many of the boats? All of them, not some of them. This is what gets lost, and this is the warning of the world. And again, what I talk about when I say we miss the forest for the trees, we argue up here, and we'll, well, no, 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 that's a bad economic plan because dot, 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 and this will disenfranchise these people, and that will disenfranchise those people. It's broken because of the greed of their hearts and your hearts, and that is only undone as it is undone in Christ. So it continues. Because of this reality, Solomon says this, Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. That's the wisdom and knowledge and skill. This too is vanity and a great evil. You want to see an example of this in our own history? During the Great Depression, you know suicide rates we increased by 25%. While it's overblown a little bit, there actually were a handful of people that jumped out of windows in New York City when the stock market crashed. <laughs> There's stories that it was like dozens of people. It wasn't dozens, but there were a handful of people that actually did that. The market crashed. I lost all my money. Wee! How tied up in this world do you have to be to think that I'm struggling and we're poor and I'd be better off dead? See, we look at that sometimes and we say, I don't understand that. Well, you haven't looked at the world according to the world's standard. You haven't hoped for everything that this world could provide and been disappointed. And therefore, you have some hope beyond that. Now, Christian, again, what's the cure? More psychologists. Better economic systems. Improve the banks. No, the problem is you have to give them an actual hope that is secure. An actual anchor that holds in the midst of the storm. Mark 10 gives you this example. Man said, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. That's talking about the law. How, how good is he that he's kept all the law? Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. See, if he, if he didn't own anything, you told him to give everything away. What would he have done? Yeah, because I don't have anything in this world. I don't have any stake here, but you want me to give up all my stuff? 
You want me to use all of my things for the benefit of your kingdom? No, I'm, I'm good, thanks. You'll have treasure in heaven. No, I'd rather have treasure here. Thank you very much. That's a brokenness, not of just desire. That's a brokenness of heart and at the core. Verse 22. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Because again, idols break your heart. Therefore, as you worship your sin, how much satisfaction do you have? None, because you can't. Now, in case you were thoroughly depressed, I have good news. And I'm not kidding. I actually have some good news because Solomon has good news. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Ooh, we're moving in the right direction right now. This, there's a punchline to this book, and I'm, I mean, I know you already know it because we've done it a thousand times, but I'm going to try not to go to the end of this book before we get there because I want this to have the weight of it as we go through it. But this is the beginning of the punchline because at the end of the day, you can't deny the reality of your world. So things like James 1. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. What has Solomon not forgotten in the midst of his testing of life? He may have tried to forget it, but what has he not forgotten? What underlying universal truth that you must always remember? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Solomon would like to forget that because he would like to enjoy his wine and he would like to enjoy his women and he would like to enjoy his ponds and his houses and his money. But at the end of the day, what's the gnawing truth in the back of his brain? that there is something that awaits that is beyond here. And therefore, as you labor, remember it is a gift, and remember it is something that is, there is something that is beyond that you should be looked for. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Notice that him is capitalized there. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, which is, again, is a blessing for God's people in his world. Something we've read before, Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. See, that becomes the answer. This is, this is the great philosophical question of all humanity, isn't it? Why are we here? God. <laughs> Get any other answer, you found your idol. Live for any other thing, you found your hope placed in the wrong thing. Now, there is a flip side to this. And Christian, it is bad news for them, but it is good news for you. And I'd like to try to cover it from the good news perspective because we need that at this point. So, a per- to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Because if you have loved yourself, and you have loved your sin, and you have loved this world, and you have labored for all of these things, at the end of the day, who do all of these things serve? I don't want them to. I want them to serve me. Who do they still serve? 
Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. That's uh, 1 Timothy 6. What is Paul's ex- uh, exhortation to Timothy? Tell the people in your congregation who the world has blessed that they live for a kingdom beyond this place. Why? Because this is the result of all things. Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If you go to the end of the chapter, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Which is, which, in Christ, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The reminder is that this world serves God. It becomes vanity in striving after the wind as you attempt to serve something else because everything that you are building will ultimately do what? Serve God. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar, as he was building his great Babylonian empire, was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to judge the, the covenant people who have forsaken God so that his love can then be shown and they will know that there is a power beyond themselves. Is that why Nebuchadnezzar was trying to get rich and powerful and conquer the world? No, what did he want? I want more stuff and power. Gimme, 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 gimme. What was he doing? Do you think the Romans, when they were building their roads and sending their armies through the, uh, throughout the known world and establishing peace and garrisons everywhere so that people would have free trade and travel, do you think they were sitting there going, you know what, this will be a wonderful platform upon which the gospel will spread and God will be glorified. Is that what the Romans were doing? They were saying what? We want more tax money. Give us more tax money or we'll kill you and take it. Your choice. (laughs) But what were they doing? They were accomplishing just that. This is the reality of human existence and the thing that we forget. Christian, your world is not an accident. Your world is not a mistake. Your world may make mistakes, but your world is not a mistake. You are placed here with the wisdom, knowledge, abilities, and weaknesses that you have for this time. As Esther puts it, or as Mordecai puts it to Esther, for such a time as this. Therefore, recognize that it is God who rules and reigns over his creation. It is God who has prepared you and called you as a testimony in this time to those people. Yes, when I said those people, even the ones you imagined, even those people, because you all have that one person, you're like, even that guy? Yes, even that guy. Because always remember, someone once looked at you and went, even that guy? Yes. (laughs) Remember the rules of life. If you don't know who the weird person at your family reunion is, because you are the weird person at your family reunion. <laughs> if you don't have that one cousin, you're like, oh, that's because you are the cousin. But anyway, <laughs> you're welcome. Somebody had to tell you it might as well be me, right? You are prepped and prepared for this world because this is the world where God has put you and this is the world that he is still reigning over. And at the end of the day, no matter what it might look like, God wins. No matter how dark it may be, the light cannot be put out. And no matter how corrupt and regressive or whatever other word you want to use for it, the kingdom is coming where righteousness dwells. And our place is secured as we are in Christ. And their place is is secured as they dressed in Christ. Christian, understand that truth and live for that truth. Because anything else is vanity and striving after the wind. Let's pray.